good morning. It's Pastor Randy with uh, Made Free Church. Hope you guys are having a good day. Let me turn on some music. I love Josh Snodgrass. So awesome. There we go. Oops. Turn down. All right. So guys, we're in our series here called uh, The Good News of the Gospel or Good News of God. And we're going to be uh, here in Romans um, chapter three, uh, verses three through eight. And the title of this, uh, Bible study is called two more questions, right? So let's get into it. Heavenly father, we just come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we get to spend with you. Lord, bless our day, bless this message, bless, um, our hands and feet as we go to work today, Lord, and we go do what we need to do. We thank you for all the gifts in our lives, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity that we get to worship and uh, listen to your words this morning. Get me out of the way, Lord, and let your word go forth, Lord. We just love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, um, an announcement before we get started. Um, guys, if you guys need prayer, uh, please go to madefreechurch.org. We have a whole intercessory prayer team that is set up. Uh, that prays over your prayer requests every week. And uh, it's an honor and a privilege to pray for you. So there is a prayer request tab on the website at madefreechurch.org. And uh, once we get it, we send that out to our team and they pray over it for a full week. So guys, be sure to go and do that so we can pray for you and stand in agreement with you guys, okay? So let's get into this. So... Oh. Man, never prepared. Anyway, so you know, today we resume our study uh, in the uh, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, and this series is uh, is uh, this series is entitled Romans: The Good News of God. See, the, the Apostle Paul, you know, wrote his letter uh, to explain to the Christians in Rome and to all Christians how God brings us into right relationship with Himself. See. The apostle, um, the apostle Paul was—he was a Pharisee, right? And then you know we all know the story of when he was on the road to Damascus and had an encounter with Jesus, you know. And uh, we should all know that story. It's—it's—it's it's, it's a well-known Bible story, and it's one of the greatest uh, conversion stories ever because. The Apostle Paul, he was out to destroy Christianity, destroy the followers of Jesus, you know, and he murdered a lot of them, you know what I mean? And he punished a lot of them, but Jesus used him, you know, Jesus used him and, and saved him. I mean, what an, what an awesome uh, story of a radical transformation from being a Jew, hating the new way of Christianity to becoming a Christian himself and writing most of the New Testament, right? So awesome. So let's read Romans 3, uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 3 through 8. It says this, What if some were faithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true and everyone a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you, when you are judged. But if your righteousness serves to show uh, the righteousness of God, what shall we say? 
that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way, by no means. For then now, how could God judge the world? But if, but through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why, uh, and why not do evil that good may come? For some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. <clears throat> so, you know, it's not too often uh, that you or I get to witness an exceptional mind at work, right? And particularly in a debate or other confrontational situations. Now, if you know me, I post a lot of confrontational stuff on Facebook and a lot of people don't like it because it challenges their belief system, right? Um, and and I do that. Guys, if you guys want to uh, if you guys want to uh, post a comment or whatever, please do so uh, in the in the comments. I'll look at them when I go back and forth to my notes, okay? Just so you guys know. Um, and so, you know, the presidential debates, which has become one of a, a staple in American election process every four years, should provide it, but they do not. They don't. Usually, there are only presentations of well-dressed positions with little true interaction, and they're slanted to the media and what we have come to call image building, right? The, 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 the courts of law where legal questions are argued and decided uh, could provide an example. But the discussions are usually a hundred and technical. Besides, few of us have, have, have had the opportunities to witness trials. We'll see a presbytery meetings and general assemblies sometimes provide opportunities to witness excellent debates. But Usually, only elders get to attend the presbytery meetings or general assemblies and stuff like that. But there are some out there, convention, you know, stuff out there that's really cool too. You know what I mean? And that you get to actually see uh, people debating. You know, Apologia Church in Arizona is real good for that. They do, you know, they they do debates and Pastor Jeff and all those guys, Pastor Zach, and they go into debates about a lot of different theological stuff it's really cool so if you haven't checked out apologia please go check them out they're they're a great church so i've literally racked my mind in trying to think uh of where one could see great minds at work and i cannot really think of an example the closest example of settings in which most of us could see uh keen minds at work uh, where some of the the one of the, some of those televisions like Ted Koppel's Nightline and William Buckley's Firing Line, you have Tucker Carlson, you have uh, uh, you know uh, you have those guys, right? But current television formats cater to sound bites, right, N and not substantial debates. See, the the Apostle Paul was a keen thinking individual, and one of the, one of the sharpest men who ever lived. But we do not have many places at which to observe his mind in action. You know, in the book of Acts, which records the progress uh, of, his, uh, of his missionary journeys, we are told repeatedly that Paul went into the Jewish synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. You can find that in Acts uh, 9.22, uh, 17.2-3, 
and verse 17, chapter 18, verse 4, and verse 28, and 19, 8, right? But there, there is most, almost no records uh, of the form of these debates that took or, or how Paul dealt with the questions his opponents would be have been asking and thrown at him, right? So, I say, again, there's not many places where we can see Paul's brilliant mind in action, right? But here in Romans 3, we get at least a glimpse into the kind of back and forth reasoning that must have taken place regularly in Paul's ministry. You know, the first two chapters of Romans contain the bedrock and teaching of the, of, of the Apostle Paul regarding the nature and universality of human sin. All that, all that he has said in those chapters is to be summarized in Romans chapter 3. But Paul seems to have been hearing in his minds the questions that uh, the, the sharp Jewish, uh, qu the questions that his Jewish opponents were thrown at him over the years. You got to understand he was a Pharisee, right? So he, he understood the way they thought and, and, but he was reluctant to move onto a summary without dealing with the most important of them. See, we've already looked at one question, right? What then has, what advantage has the Jew or what value of circumcision in, in Romans chapter one through one, uh, three, one, excuse me. And following Paul's logic at this point, we see that there is a genuine advantages to the possession of spiritual things, even though they themselves do not guarantee salvation in particular, it is a great advantage to possess the word of God. In Romans 3.8, Paul deals with two more questions, right? In, in the text are actually seven questions. Marks as the apostle phrases these questions and no doubt reflecting on the ways in which they had been voiced before voice to him, right? But there are really only two basic questions and it is these two questions that Paul answers before moving on into his summary in Romans 9 through uh, verses, uh, Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 20. Today I want to look at the two, I want to look at those two questions and Paul, and, and ask, and Paul, that Paul asks and, and he also answers in Romans uh, chapter 3 verses 3 through 8. Now, the first question has to do with God's faithfulness. The question Paul arises in verse 3 grows out of what is being previously discussed. Paul asks, what if some were faithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, in these first two uh, verses in Romans uh, chapter 3, Paul defended the value of circumcision, the chief Jewish sacrament, uh, and the possession of the Old Testament, the Jews' Bible. Yet at the same time, Paul's maintained his chief point, namely that Jews are not saved by these things any more than a human morality and good work saves the Gentiles. And all Jews and all Gentiles stand equally under a, the just condemnation of God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. But says Paul, Paul's opponent, uh, uh, opponent, excuse me. If Jews were not saved by these things, and therefore perishing in unbelief, since we all know that the majority of Jews did not believe in in Jesus, 
Isn't God proved to be unfaithful to his people? And since he has made an eternal covenant with them, Paul responds to the verse 4 saying, By no means. Let God be true and everyone were a liar. It is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. See, Paul is stressing the sovereignty of God in this verse. God will will not break his promises that he made with his people. In, in our sin, all of us presume on God tr and trying to manipulate him in a sense that we try to oblige him to save us regardless of what we either believe or do. The Jew did this by claiming God must have saved them because of God's internal covenant made with the nation of Israel. And the Gentile did it by claiming that God must save him because of his morality and good works. Some of you out there may be, uh, uh, may, be, may believe that God must save you because your parents are Christians or because you were baptized or because you were confirmed or because you lived in accordance to the Ten Commandments or because you regularly attended a church and supported the work and worship of the church. But you cannot be saved in that way. Yes, God is faithful and he, and, and he will save every single person he has promised to save, right? But not apart from faith, right? So if you are saved, it must be by faith in Jesus Christ, God's son, whom God appointed as savior. You know, sometimes ago I, I visited a family. I was still living in California at the time. And, um, you know, I was visiting some friends and family and, and at the point I, I asked them if they were going to, if I were going to see them in heaven. And one of my, one of my bros says, no. And then he added, but if you do, it'd be by the skin of my teeth. Maybe God will find more good works than bad works in my life. Guys, I want to say to you that that kind of thinking is extremely common, but it's unfortunately unbiblical. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not, and this is not, your own doing it is a gift from God not a result of works so that no one may boast right see the only way anyone is ever saved is by grace through faith there is no other way to, to heaven except by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and because God is faithful he'll he'll receive anyone who arrives at the gates of, of heaven trusting alone in Jesus Christ right so people that say oh you know I'll just get there by the skin of my teeth and all this stuff sorry that's not how this works but this is a common belief right the second question has to do with our sin when Paul deals with the first question in uh, Romans 3 3 through 4 he recognizes that it is an important question. In fact, he later devotes three chapters to answering God's question uh, of, of God's faithfulness more fully in Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11. But that's not the case with the second question. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's not so much of a question as, as, a, as quittable, right? 
It is playing around. It is toying with theological matters and as a result deserves the scorn that Paul gives. Yet Paul must have heard it a lot, just as we do. We, you know, we gather this from the fact that he seems to be compelled to present it in three forms, right? So the first form of the question has to do with God's role as judge of all the earth. And Paul asks in verse 5, But if your unrighteousness serves to show righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So this could be rephrased by asking, if your unrighteousness or sin is is necessary background against against which God displays his wisdom, love, mercy, and salvation, how can God judge us for what obviously has a good end, right? So we might think at this point that Paul would, you know, rely with, uh, a reply, excuse me, reply with some careful reasoning distinction or with some truth that has been formerly hidden from us. But he, he might reply that a good end does not justify bad means. But he doesn't. Instead, he replies by a categorical statement regarding the certainty of God's judgment in verse 6, by no means, for then how can God judge the world? The argument is, if there is a world, there must be a God who made it, to whom all who live and act in this world are responsible. Therefore, the, the judgment of God is given, and the argument, and any argument that would suggest it is not, is, is fallacious. The second form of the objection is like the first. It centers more on one's own contemplated judgment than on God's role as the judge. The, the, the first says, well, how can, how can God judge sin um, if sin actually leads to what is, in the end, beneficial? Paul's answer is that God is going to judge sin regardless. The second form of objection is in verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth may abound to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? See, Paul doesn't even answer this, but instead passes it to the third form of the question, which concludes their condemnation is just in chapter 3a-b. The last form of the question is most extreme, but it seems to have the way of which Paul most often heard it, right? Both because of the way Paul refers to it and the fact that he deals with it in a, in other places, like in Romans 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. Here, Paul admits that this charge has been widely dismantled against him in verse 8. Why, and it says this, why not do evil that may, that good may come? As some slanderously charge us for with saying that is more more that that is the more one sins the more God is glorified right but 
I believe this to be the most extreme form of the question because in addition to merely dismissing the judgment of God or excusing sin, the argument actually encourages the indulgence of the sinful nature and the appetite by allegedly Christian people. So, one one have heard this uh, you you may have heard this argument and it goes by a theological name is called antianism if we are saved by grace through faith entirely apart from any works of the law then what does it matter whether we live righteous lives or not indeed it isn't good that we sin because when god is given even greater glory as our savior see as soon as I put the argument in this form, you recognize even if you have not done so before that Paul is answering the question put to him many centuries ago. The issue is not a past issue, but a current and very critical one. It concerns the very nature of the gospel. You know, it's true that the gospel of salvation by grace through faith um, well, let me rephrase that. Is it true that the gospel of salvation by grace through faith leads to sin or at least excuses sin? And is it enough to sin and, and then glibly uh, claim, you know, I'm forgiven without genuine repentance expressed in the repudiation of evil and a decision to live differently, not to mention a desire to make restitution? If it is, if this were, is this if this is where Christianity leads, then I, I for I I I I for one want nothing to do with it. It's mockery. It's an offense to God's justice. But if on the other hand, we insist on Christians Christians doing righteous deed declaring as Paul does that we must not sin that grace may abound how do we preserve the true gospel for the uh, of grace apart from human merit well here is where the Roman Catholic theology and the Protestant theology part company most radically Roman Catholics have a proper concern for works right uh, no one can ever be say say that uh, it is all right to sin and yet may be saved according to Roman Catholic teaching. Roman Catholic theology brings works into salvation in a sense that God justifies us in part by producing good works in us so that we are saved by faith plus good works. See, the Roman Catholic uh, formula of justification is faith plus works Good works equals justification. Now, the Protestants reply that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. No works enter justification. Not even faith is a work. But Protestants add, or should add, there is a great deal of deficient, uh, uh, deficient Protestant theology at this point that good works must follow faith if we're justified. The Protestant formula of justification is faith equals justification plus good works. <clears throat> in other words, let us go on sitting so grace may increase, right? In Romans 6, 1. 
So it does not take an accomplished theologian to see that this is not true Christianity. Think, for example, how Jesus insisted on radical change of behavior for all who would follow him. In Luke 9.23 says this, if anyone, could, uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. He had admonished those whose faith was only verbal or intellectual in Luke 6, 46 to 49, as he says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what it, he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug, a, who dug and laid a deep down foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because he had been because it had been well built but those who hears and do not do them is like a man who built uh, his house on the ground uh, on the ground without foundation when the stream broke against it, it immediately fell and the ruin and ruin that house was great so he told the Jews of his day unless your righteousness exceeds the, of the scribes and Pharisee you will never enter the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 5.20. See, the, the, the reason all of this can be said that is that God never justi justifies a person without regenerating him or her. That is, the person being saved is given a new nature which must and will hate sin and strive for righteousness. See, Paul does not sp uh, spell out Romans 3. Um, let me rephrase that. Paul does not spell it. Uh, does not spell this out in Romans three, being content merely to scorn the position that he thinks possible to be on good terms with God, and yet continue continue to sin. But he gets he gets to that later in Romans six. There he shows that all who are saved are joined to Christ because Christ lives in them. They increasingly want what Christ wants. And if they find that they are not increasingly coming to hate sin and love righteousness, they are not really Christ. They are not true Christians. And I know you guys are going to say, man, well, how can you say that, man? I believe. Paul spells it out right here. Right? By definition, Christianity must be the most beneficial or I would say the only ultimately beneficial force in the world why because it is the work of god and god and only god can be ultimately benefit can ultimately benefit right do you doubt this i'm posing a question do you doubt this if so have you understood the first two chapters of roman those chapters have told us of the nature and extent of human sin they have demonstrated that men and women left to themselves are on the path leading away from God, the only source of true good, and the only progression along the along that path is always an inevitability of downhill progression. The original or the ultimate good comes from um Let me rephrase that. No original or ultimate good comes from any mere man or woman. 
only evil. Therefore, it is good. It is good to uh, it, 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 if it's if good is is seen everywhere. It must be from God Himself, and to to see those in whom He has planted His very nature. So, what a calling! If you're a Christian, what a destiny, right? Do 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 evil that good may result. Now, if you find yourself thinking this way, you're not a true Christian. You're not a, you're you're not, you're not a true Christian. Right, you are a Christian if you you are no Christian if evil in yourself and others do does not stress this right, and it doesn't distress you. You are no Christian if you can take the transgressions of law of God's law lightly. Now, if you are a Christian, you'll hate sin, repudiate it, fight against it, and strive for righteousness. See, we have to understand that. You know, if we call ourselves Christians, but yet we still live in the world, have sex with, with men and women, or, you know, doing all this, you're not a true Christian. If you take God's law lightly and still live in the world and still do the things that you do, you have to say, if there's not a radical transformation in your life, and, the, and because the Bible says that, the law of God is written on our hearts. We already know. You know what I mean? We already know. But if you're living in the world or or voting for a political party that, you know, kills babies and lies to you and all this other stuff, which both parties, conservative and, and Democrats do, but we're not here to speak about political positions. But I'm trying to make a point here. Um... But if, if we really understand that if we're going to be living in the world, then our Christianity isn't really true. But there's a there's a progression in it, right? Transformation sometimes comes radically and sometimes it comes over time. And, and so we get to learn about the word of God. We get to learn about, you know, uh, different things, right? We get to learn about what it means to live out what we truly believe, right? Oh, man. Hope you guys are enjoying this journey. I know I am. God, it's so great. All right, so we're going to be ending our Bible study right now. And, and I got a few more announcements before we go. Guys, if you guys would like to support Made Free Church in any way, shape, or form, please go to madefreechurch.org. There's a giving tab on the website. You can give in three ways. Through our cash app, through our PayPal link, or you can send a check or money or to the address that's provided on the website guys we also are launching planning a uh, uh, a new church here in idaho right and we're seeking your support right please go to madefreechurch.org uh, click on the made free church idaho tab and um you know we want to thank you in advance for your support because it's very important that we launch this church right um and here either in Weezer or Payette or you know wherever you know what I mean God God is moving on this so I uh, just know that wow my internet sucks today really 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 does I'm just like ah uh... anyway uh, guys we have podcasts Made Free Church does check it out on all the podcasting platforms and I do I'm uh, you know it's Reform Pastors so go check that out as well you know, um, and also we're seeking evangelists, we're seeking pastors, ministers, 
for our new website called PreachCore.org. We want pastors, evangelists, preachers, ministers who are preaching the full counsel of God. So if that's you, uh, go to our website, uh, PreachCore.org, and check us out there. And uh, thank you for watching. God bless you guys. Heavenly Father, we just come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we get to spend in your word in the morning. You're such an amazing dad. We love you. Bless our hands and feet as we go about our day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys. You guys have a blessed day. God bless you. And we will see you Sunday morning for church. All right? God bless.